As James said earlier, we're continuing our journey through Joseph, the story of Joseph. We're looking at um, modern questions, ancient answers, as we ask questions about identity and life. And we look to the scriptures for answers to some of those questions that we might be asking. Let me just recap in case it's your first time in church or you're not familiar with the story of Joseph or you've missed a couple of weeks, where we've got to in the story of Joseph. So the first week we asked the question, what is my purpose? And we looked at Joseph and his dreams. And if you remember, we remembered that all of us are given a purpose by God to grow the garden, to work in the kingdom and to glorify God and to worship him. As we've followed the story of Joseph, though, we've seen him. I mean, it's a real emotional human story, isn't it? Joseph has these these dreams. Um, His brothers really don't like him at all. And so after after his brothers hear about these dreams, they make some pretty wicked and evil plans to kill Joseph. And um, one day when they're a long way away, tending their flocks in the field, Joseph goes to find them and they, they plan to kill him. And through a series of God incidences, they look like coincidences, but God incidences, Joseph is saved by some Ishmaelites who actually end up taking him to Egypt. And the brothers go home and tell their father, Jacob, that, that Joseph is dead and that he's been killed by a wild animal. When Joseph gets to Egypt, he actually ends up in working for a household. The head of the household is a guy called Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife takes a liking to him. And um, to cut a long story short, she tries to get Joseph to go to bed with him. Joseph refuses. And so she accuses him of, um, of rape. And so Joseph then, or attempted rape, Joseph then ends up in a prison. And he ends up in this prison for 13 years. And again, through a series of what look like coincidences, but are actually God incidences, um, Joseph ends up meeting some people who go on to be very influential in the life of Pharaoh, who's the most powerful man in the country. And Joseph interprets dreams for them in prison. And suddenly Joseph is able to interpret dreams for Pharaoh when none of his magicians or wise people can. And so out of obscurity, Joseph is plucked out of prison and is given the fastest promotion ever and is made effectively prime minister of Egypt. He becomes the second most powerful person in the whole country. Last week, Lee preached on forgiveness. And the question we looked at last week was, can I forgive? And um, we see Joseph go on this very long journey towards being able to forgive his brothers. And Lee preached on um, the ABC ABC of forgiveness. And I really encourage you to go and have a listen to that last week. It was absolutely fantastic. And so our question this week is, is reconciliation possible? Is reconciliation possible? So we pick up the story in Genesis 45. And I'm going to read some of these verses. I'll jump around a little bit because there's lots to get through. And the reconciliation of Joseph and his family is emotional. It's also quite, um, it's quite a lengthy one. So I'll, I'll take us through some of these verses. So Genesis chapter 45. 
So Joseph has been on this journey towards forgiving his brothers. And then the author of Genesis tells us Joseph could control himself no longer. And before all of his attendants, he cried out, have everybody leave my presence. There was no one therefore with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. Joseph wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they, when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me father to Pharaoh, land of his entire household and ruler of all of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you here because of five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves and so can my brother Benjamin that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honour accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept and Benjamin embraced him weeping and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord. Is reconciliation possible? That's the question that we're looking at today. And we have to say here at St. Thomas's, I guess, based on the Bible passage, but also what we believe, that reconciliation absolutely is possible. Lee set this up really well for us last week. In order for there to be reconciliation, there has to be forgiveness. And we looked at the A, B and C of forgiveness last week, as I said earlier. We believe that reconciliation is so possible that we want to give all that we have to making, well, well, to seeing reconciliation happen between God and us and also each other. And that's why we're committed to planting churches so that we can see people reconciled to God. Today, 30, um, around 30 of our congregation are with Adam and Abby over at St. Luke's. As you know, we're revitalising um, and grafting into St. Luke's over the coming months and the team will be there full time in January. And the reason that we're doing that um, and Adam and Abby are leading that team is so that we can see more people across the city reconciled to God. And about now at St. Luke's, it's being announced that Alice Wilkinson, who, as you know, is on the staff team here, is going to be um, joining the staff team at St. Luke's full-time, helping Adam and Abby um, lead that church, which is really exciting. And we're going to be praying for her and for the team um, later on. But that's why we do what 
we do so that we can see people reconciled to God. Now, the world desperately needs reconciliation. Everywhere we look, there is brokenness. People are fighting. Friendships, marriages and family relationships need restoring. Different people groups and ethnicities are not able to get along. The world needs reconciliation. Our own lives, if many of us are honest, really need reconciliation as well. I was reading some statistics earlier on today. Um, Do you know that 44% of under 21s have not lived with both of their parents during childhood? This is from the Children's Commissioner for England. And most of this is due to unreconciliation in family units. 44% of under 21s. According to Bonnie Ware, who's a palliative care nurse who wrote a book on the top five regrets of the dying, she wrote that two of the top regrets are these, not saying I love you enough and holding on to grudges. Not saying I love you enough and holding on to grudges. Now, both those regrets are in some measure due to things being unreconciled. So the question we're asking is, is reconciliation possible even in the most broken relationships? Now, what I long for us to get out of Genesis 45 today is to see that Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers shows us that reconciliation is always possible, even when it seems impossible, because Jesus has made it possible for us. So we're going to look at three things today. We're going to see that reconciliation is healing, It's hopeful and it's holy. Healing, hopeful and holy. So firstly, reconciliation is healing. So in Genesis 45, I get really emotional. I was sat in um, a coffee shop earlier this week reading Genesis 45 and began to find myself tearing up a little bit um, reading it because we have five chapters of of Joseph thinking about reconciliation with his brothers and that they, they meet and it's, it's all very, it's all very um, emotional. And suddenly the author says Joseph could control himself no longer. And before all of his attendants, he just has to, he has to throw them out, doesn't he? Just so that he can be alone with his brothers. Now imagine stepping into Joseph's shoes for just a moment. Reflect on all that he's been through, the rejection the abuse from his brothers, 12 years unjustly imprisoned for a crime that he never committed. All of that because his brothers hated him and had a deep dislike for him. And then imagine being in this very improbable scenario where you're suddenly one of the most powerful people in the nation, a, a different nation to the one that you grew up in, and your brothers are suddenly before you. They unexpectedly show up in this nation that you're now in. Imagine all of the emotions that, you've, that you must be going through, seeing the people that wanted you dead and abused you for so long. And what we see in the passage is that Joseph is no longer the same 17-year-old. He learned a new language. He'd undergone a really visible transformation. Um, and his brothers failed to recognise him. But he recognises them. And as Lee said last week, he acknowledged all of the hurt and all of the pain that he had put them through. And so Joseph suddenly is faced with a dilemma. He can wield immense power. 
he could choose to have all of his brothers thrown into prison and probably throw away the key. And yet he chooses to embark on a journey of forgiveness and reconciliation. And as soon as Joseph, as Lee talked about last week, as soon as Joseph commits to go on the journey of forgiveness, a profound healing process, I think, occurs not only in his life, but in the life of everybody else around him. This is why Joseph could control himself no longer. Years and years and years of hurt and pain and emotion just come to the surface of his life and they just all come out. And I imagine that as he's doing this, he's probably shaking, he's, he's crying so much. Um, Joseph, as Lee said last week, Joseph cries a lot in the previous few chapters of Genesis. He's, the author often says that Joseph has to take himself away to go and cry. Here, though, it all just comes out publicly. Now, I'm not really a crier. I do cry quite often at the end of, um, at the end of films. Um, but this level of crying that we see in Joseph's life is on another level. In fact, he's weeping so much that all of the Egyptians hear it and the rumours actually get back all the way to the palace, to Pharaoh's house. Now, his brothers at this point are probably left bewildered. Why on earth is the prime minister of Egypt crying like this in our presence? What have we done? And then suddenly Joseph reveals his true self and he says to them, I'm your brother. I am Joseph. Now, I imagine that their response in that moment was probably one of pure terror. Their brother, the one who they'd beaten, who they'd lied to their father about him being dead, who they wanted dead, and they contemplated killing him and actually sold him into slavery. Suddenly they're faced with him and he's the most powerful man that they've probably ever met. I bet that they anticipated him throwing them into prison and, and throwing away the key. But look at what Joseph says to his brothers in verse four. Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When he owed them nothing but rejection on a human level, he asked them to come close to him so he could be near and intimate with them. Instead of extending the hurt, Joseph chose healing. And healing can only happen in close proximity. It's a really beautiful story. But when we're faced with forgive, issues of forgiveness and reconciliation, instead of it feeling beautiful, when you're in the process, it can actually be very painful. And that's why we see Joseph react in the way that he does. And so if, you're, if you cry a lot about broken relationships and hurt, it's okay. You're in good company with Joseph. C.S. Lewis said this, we all think forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have something we need to forgive. Now, what does all of this remind you of? Well, it reminds me of Jesus. Joseph is a, is a shadow of Jesus, isn't he? He's a prophetic pointer to Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. And Jesus owed us nothing but rejection. And yet, what does he say? He draws us close to him. It's only in proximity to Jesus that we can be healed, 
that we can be reconciled, that we can be made who we are being called to be. There's a story that I love in C.S. Lewis's um, Chronicles of Narnia. Um, it's in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and it's of Eustace and the dragon. For those of you that know the story, Eustace is this really obnoxious little boy who annoys all of the, all of the other little kids, and they don't get on, and they need some reconciliation, but it's impossible because Eustace is very difficult. The others can be very difficult as well. And Eustace becomes separated from the other children, if you know the story, and finds himself in a dragon's cage, uh, in, in a dragon's cave. And in this cave is all kinds of treasure. There's loads of money, there's loads of jewels. And um, Lewis says in his description of this that um, Eustace is suddenly filled with greedy, dragonish thoughts. And as he tries to get all of this stuff, he ends up turning into a dragon. And there's this beautiful pool of clear water. And Eustace, once he's been turned into a dragon, thinks if he can just get himself in this pool of water, then he'll turn into a boy again. And he tries to peel off all of his dragon skin. And whenever he peels a layer of dragon skin off, there's just another layer of dragon skin underneath. And he just gives up in discouragement, resigned to the fact that he's going to be this dragon forever. And then he's approached by Aslan. Aslan the lion, who of course is a picture of Jesus. And this is um, C.S. Lewis's um, description of what happens to Eustace in, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Then the lion said, I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I lay flat down on my back and just let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff come off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place. It hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, and the ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. There he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender, tender underneath now that I'd no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd been turned into a boy again. I suspect that Joseph and his brothers had spent decades, years and years and years, trying to peel off all of the hurt themselves. Imagine the guilt that Joseph's brothers must have lived with every single day doing what they did to Joseph and lying to his father about it. And in this moment of reconciliation and healing that can only happen in proximity, you get the sense, don't you, that Joseph and his brothers become children again and that that relationship that I'm sure they once had as children is beginning to be restored. If we have unreconciliation in our lives, sometimes the only way it can happen, we can't sort it out by ourselves. The only way it can happen is by letting Jesus peel off all of the stuff that needs peeling off. It can be painful, it can be difficult, but it's worth it. But only Jesus can do it. 
Reconciliation is healing. Secondly, reconciliation is hopeful. I'm going to particularly look at verses four to seven for this. So the brothers are now faced with a dilemma. Joseph, the one who owes them nothing but rejection, is asking them to come close and is showing intimacy to them. And Joseph says to them, don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves. And so the dilemma that they're faced with is, are they going to continue to be gripped and crippled with guilt and fear? Or are they, as Joseph is making steps towards them, are they going to choose to take steps towards Joseph? Now, God has done so much in Joseph's life that he can tell them that they don't need to beat themselves up about what they've done. In fact, Joseph is so confident of God's God's transformation in his life that he can go as far to say to his brothers, you didn't send me here. It was God. God was sovereign and in control all along. Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers means he's able to look at the situation with hope and look forwards with hope as well. God is using all of this, this reconciliation journey to bring hope. And if you feel hopeless right now because of a broken relationship or some unreconciled thing in your life, God can bring hope. He's a hope bringer. Again, who does this remind you of? Well, it reminds me again of Jesus. As Jesus takes, Jesus took the initiative and moved towards us. In the language of Eugene Peterson in John 1, he chose to come from the throne room in heaven and pitch his tent among us. Are we going to take steps towards him? Do you beat yourselves up about some broken relationship, whether it was your fault or not? Are you hurt and angry? Are you filled with hate about it? The promise of the story of Joseph is that we can let that go so that we can be free. Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is hope. Thirdly, reconciliation is holy. So look at what happens. Um, In verse eight, Joseph declares to his brothers that God has been in control this whole time. And so much so that Joseph actually, uh, one bit of his character that Joseph kept from from being a teenager is that um, he continued to be very confident in who he was. And um, we saw that in, at the beginning of the story, didn't we, in terms of the way that he told the dreams to his brothers. But he goes on to tell them that I'm father to Pharaoh. <laughs> so not only is he um, he's actually Pharaoh's deputy, but he tells his brothers, I'm father to Pharaoh. God's, God's done an amazing thing in my life. Joseph wants reconciliation with his father, though, as well. And so his brothers um, are going to have to make the journey back to their father and say, Dad, Joseph's still alive. And by the way, we've been lying to you all of these years. We wanted to kill him, but we sold him. The reconciliation that's now going to have to happen between Joseph's brothers and his father is extraordinary. Despite all the pain, though, look at what Joseph does in verses 14 to 15. Again, it's really emotional. He threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. Now you can tell just reading the story, can't you, that this is a holy moment. He kisses his brothers, there's tears and snot everywhere. We often see that in prayer ministry, don't we, after when we're doing prayer ministry. Tears and snot are very, very holy. It's beautiful. 
Oscar Wilde said, always forgive your enemies because nothing annoys them so much. Now that actually isn't probably a very holy way of looking at forgiveness and reconciliation because you're only doing it for you. You're doing it to get one back. You're using forgiveness to get one back over those that have annoyed you. We don't forgive our enemies or reconcile to annoy people. We do it because it's holy. The reason I say that reconciliation is holy and this reconciliation we're reading about in the Bible is holy is because how is Joseph treating his brothers? He kisses them, he cries over them. In verse 18, he promises all of the fat of the land, the best, basically the best bit produce of the land. He promises them the best bit of the land. He promises them new clothing in verse 22. He sends them away full, verses 23 and 24. He treats them as if they've done nothing wrong. He treats them as if they are fully righteous, as if they're the fulfillment of all righteousness. And this is what true reconciliation looks like. Again, who does this remind you of? Well, it reminds us of Jesus, who promises us the choicest of meats and and the finest of wines, even when we don't deserve it. Jesus in the book of Isaiah, who promises us a land where there's no more tears or pain or suffering. That's the best kind of land. Jesus in the book of reconciliation, who promises to clothe us in righteousness in Ephesians 4. Jesus, who promises us new clothing in the waters of baptism. Jesus, he treats us as if we're completely holy because he has made us holy. Now, this is a challenge to us, isn't it? Because this is the way that we're to treat those who have hurt us. I'm going to end by telling a story. It's one that is a relatively well-known story. It comes out of the Truth and Reconciliation Project in South Africa. And for those of you that don't know um, what that was, when... Mandela and Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu were asked to help head up the Truth and Reconciliation Project in, in South Africa. Um, people that had committed racist crimes against, uh, against, um, against people of colour in South Africa were, were tried in court and the victims got to help, got to effectively set the sentence for those that had, had committed wrong against them. And I'm going to tell the story of a, a very small frail black African lady um, who was faced with somebody who did the most horrendous thing to her family. Um, And we're going to hear her response to that as we go through. So the scene is in a courtroom in South Africa. A frail black African small lady stands slowly to her feet. She is more than 70 years old. Facing her from across the room are several security police officers. One of them, Mr. Vanderberg, has just been tried and found guilty in the murders of many people, including the woman's son and the woman's husband. Mr. Vanderberg had come to the woman's home one night, brutally taken her only son, shot him at point-blank range while she watched, and then his man had burned the young man's body while his officers partied nearby. Several years later, Mr. Vanderberg and his cohorts returned, This time, they took away her husband. For months, she heard nothing about his whereabouts. She did not know if he was alive or dead. Then almost two years after her husband's disappearance, Mr. Vanderbilt came back to fetch her. She vividly remembered the night her husband was taken. She was taken to a riverbank, and to 
To her surprise, she was shown her husband. To her dismay, she saw how he was bound and badly beaten. She, re she rejoiced to see he was still strong in spirit as he lay on a pile of wood. She watched in horror, though, as Mr. Vanderberg and his fellow officers poured gasoline over his entire body. The last words she heard from her dear husband's lips as they set him aflame were, Father, forgive them. Now this dear wife and mother is standing in the courtroom and listening to the confessions of Mr. Vanderberg, the man whom had committed horrible atrocities against other human beings. Suddenly, a member of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission turns to her and asks, what do you want? How should justice be done to this man who has so brutally destroyed your family? Calmly and confidently, the dear old woman replied, I want three things. First of all, I want to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burnt so that I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. She paused and then continued. My husband and son were my only family. I secondly, therefore, want Mr. Vanderberg to become my son. I would like for him to come twice a month to where I live and spend a day with me so I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining in me. Finally, she said, I would like Mr. Vanderberg to know I offer him forgiveness because I have been forgiven. Jesus Christ died to forgive. The wish of my husband was to forgive. So I would kindly ask someone to come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so I can take Mr. Vanderberg in my arms, embrace him, and let him know that he is truly forgiven. As the court assistants came to lead the elderly woman across the room, Mr. Vanderbeck falls over in a dead faint, overwhelmed by what he has just heard. As he struggles for consciousness, those in the courtroom, family, friends, neighbours, victims of oppression, racism, injustice, begin to sing softly but assuredly, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Is reconciliation possible? Yes. As Lee said last week, though, it took Joseph years and years and years to reach this point of reconciliation. These things are always a process and a journey. They don't always happen overnight. And if you're in a period of unreconciliation at the minute, um, don't want you beating yourself up about it. As I say, it took Joseph decades. But when we begin to move towards it, we can know healing, hope, and the holiness of Jesus. Intentional enforced unreconciliation is not healing, it's the opposite. It's not hopeful, it's the opposite. It's not holy, it's the opposite. And so some steps that we might want to take in response to knowing that Jesus has taken these steps towards us is to draw close when we're ready to people that we know we need to be reconciled to. To offer hope, even when something looks, looks hopeless and to pray even for our enemies, that we might offer the same grace that's been afforded to us in the person 
of Jesus Christ. Amen.